Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and I'll be reading the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray as we come to this extremely important text in the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand more of the fall of man and the temptation of the serpent, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see and help us to understand this text and see how we can take things from it to heart. And so we ask for your help. Help me in preaching, help the brethren here in listening, and help those who are still in their lost, fallen state to come to the Redeemer who alone can deliver them. And so we pray for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So we saw in chapter 1 of Genesis a broad overview of the creation of the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, we saw zoomed in after talking about God resting on the seventh day. We saw a zoomed in view of how God made things, particularly focusing on how he made the man and how he made the woman. We saw last Lord's Day, the reality that God bringing the woman to Adam set a pattern for marriage as a creation ordinance and the blessing of that union of one man and one woman in holy marriage. Now we will see the sad reality after seeing God's very good creation. We will see the sad reality of the real, literal fall of mankind as recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And so the main point of this sermon is, through the temptation of the serpent, Eve is deceived and eats of the fruit. Adam willingly follows her and eats himself. And in light of this, they sense that they are naked. So my first point, through the temptation of the serpent, Eve is deceived and eats of the fruit. And Adam willingly follows her and eats himself. My second point, in light of eating the fruit, they sense that they are naked. So again, my first point. 
through the temptation of the serpent, Eve is deceived and eats of the fruit, and Adam willingly follows her and eats himself. So we now see in chapter 3, it begins with talking about this one who is described as the serpent. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He was more crafty, more cunning than any beast that God had made. But we know from other scriptures who this serpent is. The, The scriptures tell us. Who this is, so we don't have to guess. If you turn to Revelation 12, and this is important in Bible study, interpreting the Bible, when you have revelation in the future that comments, comments on earlier revelation, you should look to it. Later revelation helps us understand earlier revelation by giving more light and clarity in progressive revelation. So Revelation 12 and verse 9 kind of giving an apologetic for why we look at a text so far away from Genesis, because the apostles, the New Testament writers, comment and give us clarity on Old Testament realities that maybe weren't as clear without the New Testament writings. We know they weren't as clear because the New Testament gives us much more light and revelation. So Revelation 12 and verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So John by the Holy Spirit says the serpent of old was the devil and Satan. The devil was coming in the form of a serpent to tempt and to entice Eve. He first came, he came of course directly to the woman. And so we see that the New Testament tells us explicitly that serpent of old is also called the devil or Satan. And so that's who this creature is who is coming to Eve, this crafty and cunning creature. Because we must remember that the serpent, the devil, Satan, is a creature, not the creator. We don't want to give powers to the devil that are divine and not creaturely satan was created he was made by god and therefore he's a creature he's finite he's limited and so we don't want to think about the devil as being omnipresent or omniscient or all these things of course he doesn't have the limitations of a body because demons and angels are spirit beings but at the same time he's he's not god and so even when sometimes we talk about the devil being involved in our temptation a lot of times we use the devil as a summary of demonic powers We don't always mean, or we shouldn't mean, it's the devil himself, but we mean the demonic realm. Because there's many men, many, many fallen angels, sometimes also called, again, demons. And so we know at some point, the demons fell, including Satan. And here we see that this serpent, who we know is the devil and Satan, is involved, is going to be involved in the temptation of Man, Particularly, he goes not to Adam, but he goes to the woman. Goes to the woman. And listen to what he comes and tells her. He says, this is still verse 1, and he said, this is the serpent, the devil and Satan, all, all the same creature. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
That should, that should, by just hearing that, should make us think something. Because he utterly twists it. God said, Jehovah said to his, his, to Adam, you can have every tree of the garden except one. The devil twists it and says, has God said that you can't eat of every tree? Has God said you can't have access to all these trees? Where God said you have access to every tree except one. The devil makes it seem like they don't really have access to any trees. Has God said you don't have access? Has God really said you can't eat of every tree of the garden? And you could see where there's a hint of truth to what Satan is saying because all lies many times, especially what makes them deceptive, is there's a hint of truth. And what the hint of truth is here is, yes, God did say they couldn't eat of every tree. That is true. But how he makes it seem is God is being stingy. God is holding back. Did God really say you can't have anything you want? Is God really saying you can't have whatever you desire? God really said that? Has God really told you that? And so he's questioning here the word of God. He's questioning God's word to Adam and to, we, I'm saying Eve. I know her, she was named Eve later, but we know her commonly speaking as Eve. Now, right now she's just the woman. But we see here that he takes it and he questions God's word. God's word to them. And he questions not only the word, but the goodness of it. The goodness of God in giving this commandment. God is being stingy. God is being harsh. God is being a killjoy. And so he is questioning the word of God and the goodness of God. But then we see how the woman responds, verse 2 and verse 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So now we see, so the serpent goes to the woman, and he seeks to question God's word and God's goodness. The woman responds and tells the serpent, no, we can actually eat of every tree of the garden. We can eat of all the trees of the garden, but of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, we can't eat it, we can't touch it, because if we touch it or eat it, as she's recording it, we die. And so she communicates God's commandment to the serpent that no, God isn't being stingy. We We do have access to all the trees. God is just limited up one tree, a tree in the midst of the garden. People can make a lot of her saying, nor shall you touch it, that I think probably is more speculative. The reason why I say this, we, it's, it can be very tempting to say that there was sin before sin. <laughs> let me, I'll make that more clear, but let me just say it again. It can be very tempting to say there was sin before sin. And we, we over-speculate it. They did not sin until they ate the fruit. So whatever Eve is saying here, it was not sinful. It was not a sin for her to say, nor shall we touch it. Because they did not sense their nakedness and fall until they ate of the forbidden fruits. And so we don't want to put sin where the Bible doesn't say there was sin. Otherwise, we're putting beyond the scripture. Me and my wife are talking about this week because I obviously we... We have conversations about things. And I told her it could be something like this. God tells you you shall not commit adultery. 
And a man says, you know what? That means I'm not going to be in a hotel room by myself with a woman who's not my wife. That's a legitimate application of it. To say this is what God says, a legitimate application is this. It's possible that's what Eve is doing. It's possible what she's doing is God said not to eat it. So a legitimate application of it is not even to touch it. That's very possible. Whatever is going on with Eve here, the woman, she hasn't sinned. So we have to be very clear about that. She hasn't sinned yet in what she said. Because some people can look in this and speculate, well, is, is, league, is Eve being legalistic, putting a fence around God's commandments and putting extra and all that. And all that's speculative. Because adding to God's commandments is sin. And Eve didn't sin. The woman didn't sin. Adam didn't sin until they ate the fruit. So all that being said, I think it makes the most sense. Whatever Eve is saying, it's very possible that she is just having a legitimate application to God's commandment. God said not to eat it. That means a legitimate application. We're not going to touch it. God says not to commit adultery. I'm not going to be alone with a woman in a hotel room who's not my wife. Legitimate application. Could be very much like that. But she tells the serpent, if we do eat this tree, if we do eat of the forbidden fruit, what's going to happen is God said, you shall die. You will die. So if we take of this fruit, the consequences are severe. Think about it, though. The woman didn't know what it meant to die. Not experientially. She had to take that by faith. They, they never saw someone die. They never experienced death. But she knew that God said that the punishment for taking of this tree would be death. We know that there was also a promise of life. How do we know there was a promise of life in the garden? There was the tree of life. There was the tree of life. So in God's, this, this situation that I've called the covenant of works, is there was the promise of life, the tree of life, and a promise of death. In the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll see later on that they were barred from the tree of life after they fell. And so, but we see here that she says, if we eat it, if we touch it, if we take of this fruit and eat it, we're going to die. And then listen to what the serpent says. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So first we see him questioning God's word. Then we see him outright denying God's word. He questions the validity of God's word. And then after that doesn't work, he just comes out and says, no, that's not true. You're not going to die. He even emphasizes it. You will not surely die. God said to them in the day that you could be literally translated dying, you shall die. Or as our English Bibles usually translate, you shall surely die. And he says to her, you will not. Not only does he say you will not die. He emphasizes it. You will not surely die. If you eat, God is not telling you the truth because if you eat, you won't die. We could say Satan was the first liberal theologian. He denied the validity of the Bible, of God, I should say God's word. We don't have the Bible yet technically because it's written under Moses, but he denies the validity of God's word and then he outright denies it. And this is Satan's strategy. Satan's strategy, even now, because... He continues the same strategy. What he tries to infect people with is first questioning God's word and then outright denying it. He begins by putting in your mind doubts about God's word and then puts completely in once he's got you to doubt, say, no, that's not true. That's not right. That won't happen. God is not telling you the truth. You will not surely die. And so he was 
a liberal theologian, because what do liberal theologians love to do? And I'm saying that somewhat as to make a point, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. He's, he, what do liberal theologians do? What do unbelieving, skeptical theologians do? They doubt the truthfulness of the word of God and they outright deny portions that they don't like in the word of God. And what portions do they normally deny? What's one of the things that goes first for liberal theologians? Unbelieving, unconverted theologians. People who say things about the Christian religion but are not converted. Almost always it's the doctrine of eternal punishment. It almost always begins with, you will not surely die. If you live in sin, if you do what you want, you're not going to die. You're not going to be punished. You're just going to be annihilated. You're just going to uh, be experienced non-existence. You're not going to suffer for your sins. That would be cruel of God to do that. You know where they got that from? Satan himself. We could call that demonic theology. To put it stronger, liberal theology is just demonic theology. Because whenever we question God's word and deny God's word, we're speaking like the serpent. We're thinking the serpent's thoughts after him. We're living in accordance to the serpent. And so when a person questions what God says and then denies it, they are living in the spirit of their father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. That's his nature. To twist and then to deny. And this is how lies happen. Because why temptation or to doubt things in the word or deny them is because there can be subtle truth to it. Even, beloved, don't we realize even too, there's actually subtle truth to what Satan is saying here. Of course, he's not omniscient, so he doesn't have the whole picture, but there is subtle truth. When, when they took of the fruit, did they die physically immediately that second? No. They died spiritually. They lost communion with God. But there's even a twisting of that. That's what, this, that's what the devil loves to do. He loves to take the truth and give you enough truth where it sounds reasonable and twist it. And twist it. And that's what he's doing here to the woman. He's getting her to question the word of God, the goodness of God, and the judgment of God. And so he is pulling at her heartstrings, in a sense, we could say, by getting her to question God. And so it's not, it's not humility. It's not loving. It's not right when a person says or a person doubts God's word. Or it's certainly not loving or humble when they outright deny it. That's the height of pride. Because if they want to be proud, they should follow their father, the devil. And that was his tactic. Humility comes under God's word and says, yes, that's what God says. And it's good. And that's what it's going to be like. God said it. That settles it. We don't even have to worry about it. I believe it. Because whether you believe it or not, it still settles it. God said it. That settles it. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Of course, you should believe it. But if God said it, that settles it. But the proud mind says, I don't like that. Or they might start like this. Is it really wrong for a person to live that way? Is it really not right for someone to believe that way? Is it really something that that is that bad? They're where the doubts come in. And then after that, when a person dwells on that, where do they go after that? It's not wrong to live how you want to live. Question, then deny. Question, then deny. Can it really be wrong? There's no way it can be wrong. Is it really wrong 
for a man and a woman to quote-unquote, quote-unquote purposely, to get married, is it really wrong? I mean, if they love each other, it can't be wrong. Is it really wrong for a woman to have the right to choose what she does with her own body? This is the language people use. It can't be wrong. Is it really wrong for someone if they really feel that they're a different gender than the one they were given? Is it really wrong for them to live according to how they feel? It can't be wrong. And we could do this for many things. We begin to doubt the goodness of God, doubt the word of God, and then we outright deny it. Because we become the determiner or we feel we become the determiner of what is right and what is wrong. And so Satan is the first liberal theologian, the first skeptical theologian to say, let's question the word of God first. And then second, let's outright deny it. You know why this is a clever strategy too? I'm using clever someone in quotes, but he does call him cunning. He does call him cunning. Why this is cunning and clever is because if he came right to the woman and said, you won't die, God's a liar, he doesn't love you, then it would have been too in their face. It would have been too much in her face. So what does he come? He comes kind of through the back door by questioning the word of God, by questioning it, by questioning the goodness of it, and by outright denying it. And the interesting thing of this Uh, In theology, we have a distinction between what's called moral and positive law. Moral law are things that are based, are right and wrong because of God's character. Positive law is not to be understood as like something that's positive or negative. Positive meaning something that is not good or bad in itself, but it's good because God said it. Let me just give you an example. Circumcision is a positive law. It's not good or bad in itself, morally, but it was added, and that's why it can be abrogated, because it's not good or bad in itself. The dietary law was not good or bad in itself. It was added to separate the Israelite people from the nations. This commandment is unique because this commandment is not moral law. It's positive law. Meaning, the justification for why they shouldn't do it could not be God's character. They couldn't say, well, because this is a reflection of God's character. What this was based on is the reality that God is their authority and they are under him. And therefore, there was even a more unique challenge to the serpent questioning God because this was something that was neither good or bad in itself. Nothing's wrong with eating a tree in itself. But what made it wrong was God told them he was their authority. And so he, again, he comes questioning the validity of what God is saying and even outright denying it. So my beloved brethren, an application for you early on is anything that encourages you or helps you in quotes, because not really helping you to doubt the word of God, to doubt the goodness of God is not good for your soul. There are some people who, who need to know what's going on so that they can refute it. And there's a place for that. But many of us need to just dwell on what is helpful to trust and live according to the word of God. Most of you in this room are not in the position or not called upon to know all the different things going on. But you are called upon to trust and live according to the word of God. And you are called upon not to deny it like the serpent, but to trust it. 
and especially as it relates to things that are connected with God's moral law based on his character, we know for sure it's good. This was good because God said it. Those commandments, the moral law, are good because they reflect God's good character. So both ways they're good. They're just, you argue that they're good in different ways. And so we see, though, this reality of of the serpent. But then the serpent goes on. After telling her, you will not surely die, he goes on to elaborate on that. He says, for God knows, this is verse 5, that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he says this. One, he denies. And then he not only denies, but says, I have something better for you. We see a, we see a, a trajectory here. First question the word of God. Then deny the word of God. And now say, I have a better thing than the word of God. I have something better for you than the word of God. What God says is not good for you. I have something better, something more valuable to you than obeying God as your authority. I have something better. And the reason why God is not letting you eat of this tree is because he's stingy. Because he's stingy. That's why. He doesn't love you. He's stingy because God knows that when you eat this tree, your eyes will be open. And the irony of it, there was some truth to that, as we'll see. But the twisting, he didn't mean eyes open like they'll experience. He meant eyes open, you'll be enlightened. You'll be enlightened. You'll have knowledge that other people don't have. You'll be able to be actually knowledgeable on things. You won't be this person who doesn't understand. You'll actually know. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Which I take it to be most likely what Satan is tempting them is, you'll be the one who determines good and evil. You'll be like God. You don't have to be under his authority. You'll be your own authority. You'll be able to say what's good and evil. You'll be like God in that sense. Because we know they are you're like God, made in his image and all of this. But I think what he's saying is you will be like God. You don't have to be under him. You'll be a law unto yourself. You'll determine for yourself what is good and evil. You'll determine it based on what you feel is best, not what God says. And so he says, God is being stingy to you because he knows that your eyes will be open. You'll be like him and you will no longer have to be under the shackles of this stingy God. You'll be set free to be able to live as you want, as you define, as you want to live. And is this not still where people are? This is still the temptation that people have. They begin to doubt the word of God. They begin to deny the word of God. And then they say, I actually know a better way than the word of God. This is where skeptics begin. Those who at once profess Christ, they didn't have true salvation. They weren't really saved. But those who have what's been commonly called now deconstructed, this is what happens. This is what deconstruction is. Satan's tactics is the same. Deconstruction is this. They begin to doubt the word of God. They then deny the word of God. And then they say, I know something better than what the word of God says. And you know what that is? That's thinking Satan's thoughts after him. That's Satan's strategy from the beginning. And his tactic has not changed. And so when someone who says they were a Christian, they weren't because you can't lose your salvation. Let me make that very clear. But someone who says they were and now no longer confesses Christ They followed the lessons of the serpents. Because no one wakes up who professed Christ, 
who looked like they were living for Christ. No one wakes up and says, who was, who was actively involved with this and says, you know what, I just don't believe anymore. It never happens that way. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. And where does it always begin? By the world, the flesh, and demonic forces coming in and saying, did God really say that? Did God really say that? And then it's the world, the flesh, and demonic forces come in and say, no, that's not true. That's not, that's not true. That won't. That's not the case. And then the world, the flesh, and the devil, or demonic forces come in and say, I actually have something better. You'll be enlightened. You don't need to be with these people who are outdated. They're, they're stuck in an outdated morality. I have something better. I have something more desirable than anything that the Bible can give you. That's just written by men. That's just man's opinions. That's just man's desires. You want to be enlightened. You want to really know the truth. You want to really have your eyes open. You don't want to be stuck in a book written by men thousands of years ago. Why would you want that when you can have updated, enlightened knowledge? This is not what the reality is. I mean, these are real arguments that people can give. These aren't even like made up just out of nowhere. People will use the argument. It's just written by men. It's outdated. The morality is outdated. You want something better. We, we, we've outgrown the view that homosexuality is sinful. We've outgrown this reality that you have to be the sex that God made you. We've outgrown all that. We're enlightened now. This is how people think. And again, I'm going to keep pressing it because I want you to hear it over and over again. This is people thinking Satan's thoughts after him. This is what it means to have the mind of Satan. To question God's word, deny God's word, and say there's something better. And so we see this in the woman as she's being tempted by the serpent. And then we see in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So the woman saw this tree. And I'm going to point this out directly, but these, this language should sound somewhat familiar. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are not of the Father, but are of the world. Where do we see that? So the, th- the way John, by the Holy Spirit, defines the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was pleasant in the eyes, the lust of the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. The temptation was connected to how John defines the world. The lust of the flesh, as she saw this tree, is good for the food. It would be good. It was drawing up the lust of her eyes. She saw it. It was pleasant. It was beautiful. It was beautiful to behold. And it was also something that she thought could give her true wisdom, the pride of life. God can't give me wisdom. God's ways are not wise. If I take of this fruit, that's when I'll really have wisdom. If I eat of this tree, that's how I'll really experience joy that I've never experienced because it's good for the food. These other trees, I mean, they're good, but this tree really is good. This tree is really beautiful. 
I'll experience beauty that I've never experienced. And I'll really have wisdom. This was what she was tempted by. Less of flesh, less the eyes, and the pride of life. And in light of that reality, in light of the serpent's deception to question God's word, deny God's word, question God's goodness, question God's judgment, question God's wisdom, all these things, it was too much. And she took of that fruit, even though there was nothing sinful in her, they were upright, perfect creatures. She took of this fruit in cosmic treason against their good, wise, and loving creator. It's not just them taking a little bit of fruit. It's saying, God, I don't want you, and I want myself. That's what they were doing when they ate the fruit. So even though the fruit was the sin, there were things that were involved with the eating. Because historically, and I think it's right to say, that in breaking this commandment, they broke all ten commandments that were written on their heart. They served themselves more than God. They did not worship, honor, and serve God rightly. They blasphemed his name by trusting the serpent over God. They did not honor time as God wanted. Because remember the Sabbath days saying, God owns your time. Your time belongs to him. They did not redeem the time. They did not honor his authority. They murdered the whole entire human race. They did not love and care for one another like they ought. Broke the seventh commandment. They stole from God. God said, you can't have it. And they took from it. And they believed lies and had in their mind lies. And they coveted what belonged not to them, but to God. So I'm not saying before the eating, but in the eating, they broke all 10 commandments. Because not only did they break that commandment, but they broke all the 10 of the 10 commandments. If you take out your hymn book, I want to show you in our confession. Turn to, let me find the page. Turn to page 673. So not the hymn, but page 673. 673 in your hymn book. 673. I want you to see the language because our confession is very helpful of summarizing what happened in this event. So 673, this is of the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. Paragraph 1, which begins with although God. So paragraph 1. So 673 is right at the bottom of the page where it says, quote, 673, quote, Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, Then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress, and then here it is, the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it, to his own glory. We see here, though, the the confession rightly says they broke the law of their creation. By that, they mean the Ten Commandments. That's what they mean by that. They broke the Ten Commandments and they broke the commandment not to eat of the tree. So in this act, they violated that law that was written on their hearts. 
Not loving God, not loving their neighbor, which is Jesus' summary of it. And they took of that fruit and ate. We know, of course, as they say rightly, that this was of God's appointment. God was pleased to permit it because he purposed it to his own glory. But we see that they were responsible for breaking the law of their creation, the Ten Commandments written on their hearts, and of eating the forbidden fruit. Also helpful language, they say that the woman was seduced by the serpent. But Adam, without any compulsion, he, it does use the language that she was seduced, that he, uh, she seduced Adam without any compulsion, but it says that he was not under the same seduction as she was, and he did willfully transgress it, where she was seduced and he did it willingly. That's what they're saying. And that makes sense because the New Testament says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there's a unique sense in which the woman was seduced and the man did it willingly. He did it willingly with his eyes wide open, in a sense we could say, and she did it by being seduced. And the irony we see here that this situation, again, we can speculate about this and we don't want to put sin before sin, but we do see that Adam was here. Because Adam was there and she eats, she gives it to her husband, and he eats. And so in this, she takes the fruit and she eats. She gives it to her husband and he eats. And so we see this reality. And we also see a picture here that many times deception comes and it comes as, and we see this in other places in the scripture, the serpent, demonic forces go to the woman and then the woman gets to her man, and that's how deception happens. We see that reality throughout Scripture. We saw it when, we were, when I was exposing 2 Timothy that, that the false teachers go to gullible women, loaded down with sins, and that reality. And we see here that reality that the serpent doesn't go to the man, the one who was the head, the authority. He goes to the woman to get to the man. That was his strategy. He goes to the woman to get to the man. And, and so therefore, she's deceived, but he goes eyes wide open, eating of the forbidden fruits. And so we see this reality of, of Satan's strategy. And it's really a reversal of the order. It's God, man, woman. Or we could say God, yeah, God, man, woman. I know Christ is there in 1 Corinthians 11, but that's, of course, Christ as mediator as the God, man. He hasn't been yet incarnate. So we see that reality, but the serpent. And then under the woman is obviously, of course, the beast of the field. The, the animals and all these. We see here is a serpent and she, he goes, he usurps God's authority and goes, usurps the man, goes right to the woman as a, as a reversal of the order that God created. He doesn't go to the head, he goes to the helper. He doesn't go to the leader, he goes to the one being led. And so we see this reality and then she, again, she takes the fruit, eats and he eats. But now my second point. In light of eating the fruit, this is my second point, in light of eating the fruit, they sense that they are naked. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So we see here that there was some truth to what Satan said, what the serpent said. Their eyes would be open, but not in the way he meant it. Their eyes were open now with the guilt and shame of their sin. And it's expressed by they sensed, they felt, they, they, 
knew that they were naked. They've always been naked. They were created naked. Now they sense it. And if you look at the scriptures, there's always a connection with shame and nakedness. Post-fall, to be naked, to be unclothed in ways where our body should be clothed, not just, scar- not just completely with no clothing on, but even in ways that shouldn't be exposed, it's shameful. There's a connection between nakedness and shame. And so we see here them feeling this naked, or them knowing they're naked by their eyes being open, it was them feeling the shame of their sin. I mean, think about this. They have only had perfect communion with God, perfect fellowship with each other, no shame, no guilt, no sorrow, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect happiness. And now for the first time, in light of eating the forbidden fruit, they feel shame. They feel shame. We'll see later, Lord willing, next week, how they, they hide themselves in their shame. But here we see they, they sense this reality and they, they're ashamed. And we see that in light of their shame, they try to do something. And they sew fig leaves together and they made themselves coverings. We'll see that these things were woefully insufficient. But they, they sew fig leaves together. Some have... Again, this is speculation. I don't know. We don't know what the tree is. Some people think it was an apple. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us explicitly. But it is possible it could have been a fig. Because it's possible the closest tree that was there, that they ate of a fig, some type of fig fruit, and they put on fig leaves. But we don't know. But it is interesting that it does tell us what type of leaves they put on. They were fig leaves. But whatever they ate, they ate some type of forbidden fruit, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. All this historically happened. All this happened in real life history. These were the first two people, and this is why things are the way they are. Sometimes people, and I actually had someone recently, the question came up with the problem of good and evil, which irony, the ironic thing for me a little bit is if people don't believe that God exists, there is no such thing as good and evil, which is a little bit interesting that they're asking about good and evil when that category can't exist if God doesn't exist. But setting that aside is... This can be a big stumbling block for people. Why is there so much evil in the world? If God is really good, why is there so much evil? And the answer I love to tell people, and I think is so important, is God is telling us that sin really matters. Sin is a big deal. Think about it. If we lived in a world that was just peace and harmony and joy and gladness all the time, and there's no bad things happening, we would think sin is not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter that we rebelled against God. It doesn't really matter that they committed cosmic treason. Everything's good. But the reason why God has permitted evil and much evil to continue is God is screaming to us every single day, the fall really mattered. It was really serious. It really mattered. And God is not going to allow us to think that sin is no big deal. And therefore, he has allowed sin to continue to scream to us every day, something is wrong. Something is wrong. And the problem is in us. And so if there wasn't evil in the world, even great evil, it has nothing to do with God being good. It has everything to do with God being true. And God said, in the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. Spiritually, that moment, they lost communion with God. And they began the process of dying. And every other bad thing that's ever happened can be traced back to this, where God is screaming in the world, Cosmic treason against him is a very, very big deal. So as Christians, we have a great answer, I believe, for the problem of evil. 
One, we can define evil because it's contrary to God's character. And we can say, you know why there's evil? Not because God made it this way, but because man rebelled against him and he has chosen in his infinite wisdom to leave the consequences so that we sense how heinous sin is. But also as well, what a wonderful thing that even though their fig leaves were woefully insufficient, we will see that God closed them, which was a foreshadowing. And we even see God promising in verse 15 of this chapter that God would send a redeemer. That even though this world has been corrupted by sin, God chose not to leave man in this condition, but promised to send a redeemer who we know as our Lord Jesus Christ, who would reverse the curse and would die for his people. And he would extend his blessings as far as the curse is found. And as we sang of the reality to Jesus we for refuge flee. Who, let me just make sure I get it right because I really want to quote it accurately. To Jesus, we for refuge flee. Who from the curse has set us free and humbly worship at his throne, saved by his grace through faith alone. To Jesus, because we know that all of us are born into this world as descendants of Adam, in Adam, and therefore we die. But in Christ, when we come to Jesus for refuge from this curse, we find full and free forgiveness. Not because we earned it or deserved it, but because Jesus came to rescue sinners who could not rescue themselves. And so this account is very tragic. But we also know in God's inscrutable wisdom, he purposed it to glorify himself. He permitted this event to happen to glorify himself in a twofold way at least to glorify his mercy in saving sinners. We would never know the mercy of forgiveness or reconciliation if the fall never happened. And God wanted to glorify himself in displaying his mercy and showing sinners how they could be forgiven and reconciled to him and made saints. So God permitted the fall to happen because God cares about glorifying himself and demonstrating mercy to fallen sinners and also to show his justice against the ungodly and wicked who rebel against him and rebel against his offers of mercy. So because God cares more about his glory than he does about you, newsflash for everybody, this is very important. You won't understand the Bible if you don't understand that point. God cares about his glory more than he does about you. And therefore God's primary purpose is not about what you think is right, but about God receiving the most honor for who and what he is as a God of mercy and a God of justice. And so therefore he permitted the fall so that we might see all that. And as Christians, as believers, we get to glorify and magnify our God as vessels of mercy, as Romans 9 puts it. To glorify God that we've received mercy that we don't deserve because we, just like everyone else, deserve judgment, but we've received mercy in Jesus Christ as vessels of undeserved mercy. God saw, this is somewhat of a paraphrase of an A.W. Pink quote, God foresaw all of your backsliding, all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your disobedience, and still set his heart upon you and redeemed you in Christ. God knew everything you would do, every thought you would have, every word, every bad action, every sinful scar on your heart because of making sinful choices. God knew all of it. And he still set his affection so to speak, affection upon you and his love upon you in Christ 
so that you would be brought out of the sinful pit and mire of depravity from being in Adam who brought you death to in Christ who gives us life. And so if you're here without Christ, the answer for you and your fallen condition is only in Christ. The only way you can be redeemed from your fallen condition is in Christ. The only way you can be redeemed from your sin is in Jesus Christ, by repenting and believing in him. And as believers, let us not fall prey to the temptations of the serpent. He does the same things for us. By doubting God's word, doubting his goodness, doubting his wisdom, doubting his judgment, and denying it. Let us say with the Apostle Paul, let God be true and every man a liar. Romans 3 verse 4. Let us confess it. God is true. Every man is a liar. And if God says it and every man's against it, let God be true. Let God be true. If God says this is the way, I don't care if the whole world says it's wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. Satan is not the authority. And anyone who comes against God, they are not thinking enlightened, with enlightened thinking. They are thinking like the serpent. They are thinking the devil's thoughts after him. Let's always remember that. By confessing that this book is the word of God and everything it says is true, is thinking God's thoughts after him. Denying it or questioning it is thinking Satan's thoughts after him. And so let us be committed to what God says. To not doubt it. Because if God said it, that settles it. Should be our attitude. That should be our attitude. And let's praise God that even though all of us were born in sin, shaped in iniquity because of our father Adam, in Christ we have been redeemed. And to Jesus, we for refuge flee. He is our redeemer. And therefore, we're not in the first Adam. We're in the last Adam who has brought life and salvation to everyone who believes. What a blessing it is to be in the last Adam who doesn't bring death and judgment, but brings life and salvation. And so may we take lessons from this, knowing that the fall of man, a real historical event, that continues to have applications for us today, for how we live as Christians and how thankful we should be for Christ, our blessed Redeemer. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray you would apply these things to our heart and to our life. In Jesus' name, amen.